Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And Chris Jericho's rocking, wrestling rager at sea. Triple whammy. Set sail October 21st. We're finally getting back out. There's still time to book your cabin to join the festivities. Just go to uh, ChrisJerichoCruise.com. Book your cabin and come enjoy the vacation of a lifetime. You get to hang out with the killer lineup. Kurt Angle, Will Ospreay, the Rock and Roll Express. Dean Malenko is going to be there. Billy Gunn, uh, Jazz, a who's who of AEW, including Orange Cassidy. Dr. Britt Baker, DMD, Reba, not Rebel, Rebel, not Reba, Jamie Hayter, Lance Archer, and Jake Roberts, The Gun Club, Cole Cabana, Will Hobbs, Ricky Starks, Chris Daniels, Frankie Kazarian, The Chaos Project, The Sedell Brothers, Wardlow, Sean Spears, so many more. And don't forget about the huge match of Orange Jericho versus Starks and Hobbs. That's right, Orange Cassidy and Chris Jericho teaming for the first time ever. And we also got Brad Williams as the guest host, Medusa's the guest cruise director, Striper, Crobot, Fozzie, Quarantine, Rubik's Cube, Secret Saints, Paradise Kitty, Dave Spivak Project. So much going on. Darkness Dave Schrader is going to be there. So much stuff going on. So please uh, snap up one of the few remaining cabins while you can. Get some laughs with Kate Quigley and Ryan Niemiller as well. Just go to ChrisJerichoCruise.com and get your cabins now. It's not, uh, you don't have a lot of time. So hurry up. Do it now. And remember, there's also, speaking of not uh, a lot of time left, not a lot of time left in uh, Fozzie's uh, first leg of the Save the World Tour. Tomorrow night's show at Capone's in Johnson City, Tennessee. Already sold out. Has been for over a year. That's so crazy. Tickets still available for Savannah, Georgia at Victory North on the 8th and the 9th. We end it all off at Orlando, Florida at the Earth Day birthday. Then we're headed to Europe starting November 29th in Liverpool at the Cavern Club. Famous there. Manchester is sold out. Glasgow is sold out. Swansea is sold out. Nottingham is sold out. Uh, Still tickets available for London, Dublin, Belfast, Newcastle, uh, Bournemouth, Birmingham, uh, Chester. Go get your tickets now at FozzyRock.com and your VIPs too. We play a special set just for you. All right, and speaking just for you, due to popular demand by request, John and Jamie from True Crimecast are back on Talk is Jericho with another gruesome serial murder case. John and Jamie's podcast, True Crime Cast, covers the small town unknown cases you've never heard of, and they do two episodes a week as well, Tuesdays and Fridays. And these are the guys who brought us the cookbook killer case, Nathaniel Barjona, who allegedly ate his victims that were children. If you hadn't heard that episode yet, go check it out. But today's episode might be even worse. Uh, John and Jamie are talking about a serial killer that's fascinated Hollywood for years. Actually, he's been turned into multiple movies and TV shows, the story of Robert Hansen. Robert Hansen kidnapped his victims, tortured and sexually assaulted them, and then let them loose in the Alaskan wilderness in order to hunt them down. It's believed that he raped over 30 women and abducted, tortured, and murdered another 17, all between 1971 and 1983. And although he was only convicted of four murders, how do these guys get away with this stuff? Drives me crazy. We're going to get into the details of the case some of his victims' stories, how he was finally captured, why he was only convicted of four murders, and so much more. So it's Jamie and John for True Crime Cast talking about the insane story of Robert Hansen right here on Talk is Jericho. All right, so uh, one of the the, the, the most uh, talked about shows that I did in a while was The Cookbook Killer with uh, John and Jamie from the True Crime Cast. And, um, you know, being the uh, always looking for new topics and looking for cool things, I said that one was so 
incredibly disgusting and terrible. Do you have any more? And they were like, are you kidding me? We've got plenty more. So uh, they're back today. And um, did you guys get a good reception from the uh, Cookbook Killer show? Yeah, we got some really good feedback from that uh, as far as as, as positive as people can be about a serial killer eating children. Yeah, right, right. You know, and once again, I'd never heard of that before, but we're going to talk about a a guy today called Robert Hansen. And this is a topic that I have heard the name, but you've, I've heard the, the idea of this to the point where they've even made movies. I don't know if the movies are based around this guy, but there's been definitely lots of Hollywood kind of interpretations of Robert Hansen's story. Am I correct about that? Yeah, there's a movie called Frozen Ground starring John Cusack as Robert Hansen. There are several Criminal Minds episodes based on this topic. It's, it's essentially the most dangerous game. He's, he's letting humans right. loose in the wilderness and hunting them down. And that's the way that he goes about killing his victims, which we'll get into how he chooses them and that kind of thing later. But yeah, hunting them down in the Alaskan wilderness like animals. Yeah, Robert Hansen, uh, just to go as a quick uh, quick description, a serial killer in between 71 and 83, he abducted, raped, and murdered at least 17 women in and around Anchorage, Alaska, hunted many of them down in the wilderness with a, with a gun and a knife. So this is the type of guy that he's actually finding victims, basically, you know, and we'll fill all this in, but taking them up to a, a remote spot in, in, in Alaska, letting them loose and then chasing after them. I mean, it's basically the running man, you know, (laughs) but a real life, much more disturbing version of, of this concept. Yeah, very much. And he's not even giving them a chance to giving them a chance to get away. He's sexually assaulting them and abusing them and weakening them before he lets them loose. So he's not even, it's not even a game to him because there's no chance of survival for most of these women. Well, let's get into it. I mean, once again, you guys have 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 a great show, and you find out a lot about these, you know, horrible people. How did Robert Hansen come on your radar? Yeah, this was one of those that we were just uh, when when you asked us to come back on. I was like, how do we up the crazy? How do we make it any more ridiculous than the cookbook killer? And I don't know if this is as gross, but to me, it's just as fascinating. So so we discovered the topic, and the more we looked into it, really the the crazier it gets, even though we've kind of told the premise, the details of it are even more weird. He was born in Iowa, in Esterville, that was uh, around the Minnesota border. It was a tiny little spot. There's only about 6,000 people that live there. And anytime we're researching a case, we try to look up, you know what, who's, who's notable from that area? There are only a few people that came up. One was another murderer. Then we have Robert Hansen. And then we have the current dean of medicine at Johns Hopkins School of Education. So quite the mixed bag coming out of Esterville there. So was it like, uh, you know, when we're talking about his childhood, I know, for example, the cookbook killer, there was a lot of kind of strange things happening when he was a kid where you're seeing some neon signs of some mental illness and some issues. Did did Hanson show any of that uh, during his uh, formidable years? Yeah, there were definitely some issues, but but I've seen so many cases with like so much worse, like this kid wasn't sexually abused or physically abused like that we know of but his dad was really stern like his dad and him did not have a great relationship his dad ran a bakery and so this kid was forced to work there like reportedly long hours 
And he was just kind of a backwards kid. Like he wasn't really confident. He had a lot of acne problems. He had a stuttering problem. He had like zero friends in school. So he had a pretty rough life, you know, outside of his home life. He, he didn't have anybody. He was a loner. So kind of the stereotypical things that you look for in someone who grows up to be, you know, kind of a murderer, <laughs> bad guy kind of guy. It's hard to even put into words when you're, you're thinking about, about Hanson, um, you know, and obviously growing into this, I mean, I, I just can't wrap my, my head around it. You know what I mean? To, to, to see what he became and what he grew into and the, the, these crimes, when did he start exhibiting some odd behavior that starts taking us down this road to where he's actually kidnapping people and releasing them as, as animals to hunt down like deer, uh, you know, at the lake in October. Yeah, with a lot of killers we cover, there's usually like big moments of they murdered a cat or they burned down a building. And it's more of a slow burn for Robert Hansen. It's important to note that he was a really big hunter. He was really big on uh, just getting out in the wilderness. He was really good at hunting, which is, uh, I don't know, that's not something that creeps me out personally. I grew up in the woods. I grew up hunting. So to me, that's kind of a normal part of my childhood. But in retrospect, that certainly is scary. Yeah, so he was a hunter, and after high school, he joined the Army Reserves. So not only was he a good hunter, like, recreationally, he was trained by the U.S. military to be, like, hunting humans. So so he's a good marksman. He, he was really well-trained in what he did. There were some other pieces. He, he was always rejected by girls. He referred to himself as the all-American nerd, so he kind of owned it, and he would say things like, yeah, I understand why girls don't like me. So self-esteem is low, which is often a big part of this. He was left-handed, but he was made to act like he was right-handed, which is just odd to me. Yeah, his dad, like I said, was really stern, and his dad made him become a right-handed person, even though he was naturally a left-handed person. So his dad forced him to do everything right-handed. So I think that just goes to speak to what kind of dude we're dealing with in his dad. So you can see the relationship strained from the get-go. Being left-handed used to be considered a disability, so this was in the 1950s, not a huge shock to me, but still, he this continued to make him more insecure, his stutter got worse, and he really just had trouble making social connections at all. But the slow build to his, his criminal life comes after he finally did get a girlfriend. He actually got married in 1960, and his wife was through with him through thick and thin Everybody thought now he settled down, but he had maintained those grudges that he had had in high school. And in December of 1960, first major crime that we know of, he and a student at the local high school got together and burned down the school's bus garage. Now, this high school student was 16 years old and he worked at the bakery. And for Hanson, this was just a big middle finger to the school system. You tried to make me be right handed. Nobody talked to me. Girls didn't like me. Catch on fire. But the 16-year-old, I mean, if you're going to trust a kid working at a bakery to help you commit a crime, that's pretty dumb. The 16-year-old turned him in, and he would be arrested for this. So, once again, you're saying that he's exhibiting, you mentioned earlier, I can't remember the exact words you used, but it seems like there is kind of a, a pattern when you're dealing with serial killers and their childhood. And you mentioned, I can't remember exactly what you said, but it's something along the lines of he was a loner or he was kind of bullied or whatever it may be. Is this kind of something that happens quite often uh, in the childhood of these people that you discuss quite a bit? Yeah, a lot of times we see, we, we refer to it as the, the McDonald triad. So like early childhood abuse and trauma, 
and then you know the strained relationships with it with his parents and then with no friends at school like those things culminated to play a role into his behavior i'm not saying that every person who's ever been abused is going to grow up to be a murderer but it definitely i think plays an influence in that yeah looking at it in reverse yeah we it's not to say that everybody with a bad childhood becomes a killer but most killers had a bad childhood so it kind of you look at it in reverse it makes sense but it makes it harder and that's a key through this whole thing who's going to pick up on these triggers who's going to see these signs and put an end to this and unfortunately nobody did for a really long time for robert hansen it's almost like a revenge scenario where they're kind of fantasizing about getting back at the people that wronged them and then that just becomes anybody in general like if they were like you said no girls would talk to him and suddenly every girl becomes that one girl who wouldn't talk to him sort of an idea absolutely absolutely you know, high school is a hard time anyway. I mean, most kids right. have, have acne and crap, but what makes high school better for most kids are the friendships, right? He didn't sure. have any of that. So, I mean, I would imagine those four years of high school were probably awful. So burning down the bus garage and actually his dad, like we said, ran the bakery and one of his biggest customers was that school superintendent. So it was almost like, you know, F the school and F my dad. I'm burning your best friend's bus garage down. <laughs> so Robert Hansen goes to prison for that crime. We'll talk about what happens next. But first, not many people know this, but my friend Steven Singer actually started out as a jewelry and diamond wholesaler, meaning he sold uh, to other jewelry stores, not to people. Okay. Then he decided to sell directly to people like us after he saw other jewelers focusing on on all the wrong things. Steven Singer saw them treating the jewelry business as a pricing game, just trying to make a buck. That's not how Steven sees the jewelry business. Steven believes the jewelry business is the love business, and he wanted to help people celebrate love with diamonds. Steven never wanted to be in the jewelry business. He wanted to be and currently is in the love business. And Steven Singer Jewelers is the love store. It's the place to buy real diamond jewelry for your real love. Steven has been in the love business for over four decades because he knew he could deliver better quality jewelry at a much better price. And he wanted to treat people like friends and not paychecks. There's no gotchas. There's no sales. There's no hassle at Steven Singer Jewelers. It's just easy and fun and the smartest way to buy jewelry and diamonds for the moments that matter most. Real diamonds from a real jeweler you can trust. Call, chat, text, Zoom, visit his showroom, or find him online at IHateStevenSinger.com. All right, let's get back to Robert Hansen. He goes to prison for 20 months. What happens while he's there, and then what happens when he gets out? Yeah, when he's there, like his parents and everybody, he kind of like makes them believe that he was innocent of this whole thing. But then once Jeez. he's in, the, in prison or in the jail, he finally admits to his wife and his parents, look, I actually did do this. And so while he's in jail, his wife just leaves him. She's done with this guy, you know, and rightly so. So he's, he's not acting like a man at this point. <laughs> That's amazing, too. When you think about 1960, like divorce was not, uh, you know, leaving your husband at that point in time was really frowned upon. So for her to do that shows just how over it she was of being around this crazy guy. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, nobody wants to spend the rest of their lives with somebody who's going to be in and out of jail for such you know stupid things. So she she left his sign in. The seeds are already starting to get planted here when you said that he was convincing people he didn't do this. And as the story unfolds, he does the same thing that that Nathaniel Barjona did and that John Gacy did 
and that he's constantly conning these people into believing he didn't do something. And it really pisses me off uh, reading about it and hearing about it. But continue on. Uh, so he's already started this this pattern of convincing people that he's innocent. Well, and you're exactly right, man. Like, he he doesn't live in some dark, creepy basement and live like a, what we would know to be a serial killer lifestyle. Like, he would eventually move to Alaska, and Jamie will talk about that some more, but he opens up his own bakery, has a really successful business. Police officers come into the bakery all the time to, to buy stuff. So to them, this guy is a normal businessman living a good life. He can afford a plane. He, like he lives a pretty normal lifestyle. So you would assume the guy's got his stuff together. You know, you mentioned those other killers. That's where we get into like BTK, the guy who is well known for being a serial killer who his family had no idea what was happening. And that's what we see here with Robert Hansen when he does end up remarrying Darla Henriksen in 1963. They pick up, they move everything to Alaska. And again, people assume maybe he's going to settle down now. But then his crimes shifted to a lot of theft, like petty theft, just like stealing candy, stealing small items from stores. It's like he got a sexual gratification from getting away with stealing things. And that would come back to bite him later down the line. When he was in Alaska, his dad, who he did not have a great relationship with, got kind of sick. And so he wanted to buy his dad a chainsaw. Uh, he said he didn't have the money to do it. So he actually went into a store, walked around a few times and stole a chainsaw so he could give it to his dad. You know, the guy has a successful business, like go buy a chainsaw. Right, exactly. It's not that expensive. But during this time, too, I'm seeing that he was also arrested uh, a couple times. And now you're starting to get into these abducting and attempted rapes and that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, we mentioned his hunting skills and we'll, we'll get back to those in just a minute. But that's when we start to see those first abductions, those first victims, if you will. He again, he's he's married. And he's running this bakery. There's a woman who comes into his bakery. She's a real estate secretary. And after she leaves the bakery, he actually followed her to her house and tried to talk her into letting him come in. Now, she made him go away because this baker's following me home. That's creepy. A few days later, he came back and brought a gun with him. And he threatened to kill her if she called for help. And he had planned to sexually assault her. We've seen him burn things down. We've seen him steal but this is where the violence directly toward individuals pick up. While awaiting trial for this charge, there was additional suspension about, suspicion about Hansen in two separate, much more severe cases. Things are about to take a, a darker turn here. And the first one starts with 1971, December 22nd. Beth Van Zanten was hanging out with her brothers in their Anchorage home. She lived with three of her brothers and there was a cousin that lived with them, but Basically, she wanted a drink, and she decided to walk down the street and try to hitchhike to the Bilo grocery store. I don't know why somebody is looking to hitchhike in Alaska in December. I feel like that would be very cold and very, very dangerous when we talk more about what was happening in Alaska at that time. But that uh, trip did not end for, for her very well, did it, John? Yeah, no. Like, she would be later found. She would be found uh, next to a, a waterfall, right, Jamie? Yeah. So how was she found there? What happened? Yeah, there were two hunters that found her on Christmas Day. So she had been missing for three days and she was found. She was naked from the bottom half, but her clothes were the top half of her clothes were on her. But once they took that shirt off, they saw that her bra had been cut off. 
She had been slashed in the chest several times. She had been sexually assaulted and she hadn't even been killed by whoever killed her, which we now believe was Hanson. She was left in the wilderness to freeze to death and had fallen down a waterfall. And that's where the hunters found her. So she was dead. She was dead. Yes. And that was the first person that we really tie back to Robert Hanson and start to see this, this MO of abduction and then release. And we also see several of his victims that are reclothed. Even after he shot a few of them, he would shoot them and put their clothes back on. So there would be no bullet holes in the clothes. So when investigators would start to investigate, they would see they had been fatally shot. But this victim was not shot. She, she died of, of being exposed to the elements. She froze to death. Yeah. Okay, so this is now starting the, the, this, this pattern. There's something you, you left me a note when when you guys were uh, were talking about this, and I just want to kind of touch on this. You say uh, Alaska culture in the '60s and '70s. How is that uh, tying in? Is there a point you wanted to make about that? Well, it was the economy was exploding because at the time there was this Alaskan pipeline going in in town there, so they had brought in just a ton of people to work, and when you have that many people coming on the scene. Things kind of, there was like a subculture, right? So there was a right. lot of sex workers going on. There was a lot of, you know, strip clubs, casinos, stuff like that. So a lot of sex workers, a lot of, lot of women trying to make a living out there off these guys who were coming into town and making a fortune. It would be called the sin city of the deep north by some people. There were, like John said, there, there were things that became normal, like robbery and embezzlement. The police didn't even waste their time with that because of all the violence going on. There were uh, sex workers and exotic dancers on every corner. They had child pornography displayed on magazine stands. It seems like almost a Sodom and Gomorrah situation in a certain part of Anchorage during this time. Here are some popular spots that you could have found if you were in Alaska at that time, Chris. There was uh, a club called the Wild Cherry, the Arctic Fox, the Booby Trap, and the Great Alaskan Bush Company. Have you ever frequented any of those establishments? Uh, I may or may not have, and I won't say anything to, uh, to incarcerate myself. Fair enough. <laughs> the great Alaskan bush company is still in service, but it's, uh, it's moved away from the, the seedy part of town. Ba- ba- there. Basically where, where I, uh, spent a lot of time in Calgary, Alberta, if you go about eight hours North is Fort McMurray. They call it the Mac. It's the oil pipeline area where all the oil guys go. Same idea. Cause you got a lot of young guys with a lot of money and nothing to do. And they're losing their minds being up there for months at a time. So, of course, there's a lot of strip clubs, sex workers, prostitutes, drugs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You're saying that's what Alaska was like around this time as well. Exactly. And and we have I know some people here in Kentucky that actually left their families in Kentucky and moved out to some of those oil cities. So, like, you leave your family behind and you're there as a single guy living your best life. There was some some shenanigans going on for sure. There was so much crime. They responded between 1979 and 83. There were 207 violent crimes at the booby trap club alone. There were just, there was so much going on that they couldn't even worry about the sex workers. That was just part of the norm. They had to focus right. on other crimes, which left them open to be victims of crimes for people like Robert Hansen. Basically what you're saying is that it's the perfect place to pick up a sex worker and she would probably never even it never even be noticed that she was gone because there was so many of them that came and went so frequently. Absolutely. And that seemed to be why he targeted those individuals. Now, Beth Van Zanten was not one of those individuals, but that was where his MO started to land. He would find a sex worker and 
start to uh, engage in negotiation or whatever. And he would actually try to bait them into making them say, I will perform this act for money. He didn't want to ask for it. He wanted them to offer it. And at that point to him, he said that they were no longer a decent person and he felt Mm. more comfortable hurting them at that time. That was his MO. So let's go from 1972 when this, 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 first lady is found then we get to 1983 and that's when you're kind of thinking when the actual dangerous game part of it comes into play so now he's starting to do things the right way and by that i mean he he's putting on this facade he he ended up filing an insurance claim that he had been robbed of all his hunting trophies and filed for three thirteen thousand dollars of insurance money and he used that to buy his airplane Jeez. He went from just taking these women to hotels and sexually assaulting them and driving them out in the woods. And now he would take them back to a hotel or sometimes to his house. Remember, he had a wife and kids. And we'll explain how he was able to do that later. But he would sexually assault them, abuse them, tie them up. And then he would tell them that they were going to go on a plane ride to his cabin. But once they would get off the plane... He would give them a running start and he would either chase them down and stab them with a knife or shoot them and then bury them in a shallow grave. And he would be quoted as saying, I'm out in the Alaskan wilderness. This is uh, nobody's going to hear these screams. It was out near the Kinnick River and it was could only be accessed by boat or plane. So it wasn't like there was any kind of other traffic out there aside from the occasional other hunter. But it was such a vast area that it was so hard to nail down what was happening. Let's talk about some of the details of the case, and we'll do that after I say thank you to Paint Your Life. Now that the world is opening up and we can travel again, take vacations, we want to celebrate some of our favorite times by turning new memories into art. Get a professional hand-painted portrait created from any photo at a truly affordable price. Or you can combine photos of people or places that you love in one painting. That's a cool idea. You can choose from a team of world-class artists and then work with them until every detail is perfect. Paint Your Life is also super easy to use. You can order a custom-made hand-painted portrait in less than five minutes and then receive your portrait in as little as two weeks. That's paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. And if you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded guaranteed. And right now, as a limited-time offer... Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. And get this special offer. Text the word Jericho to 64,000. That's Jericho to 64,000. Text Jericho to 64,000. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Terms apply. Available at paintyourlife.com slash terms. Again, Text Jericho to 64000, 64,000. All right, John and Jamie, let's talk some details about the Robert Hansen case. Tell us about Cindy Paulson, who was one of his uh, very important victims. She was actually the victim that brought him down, if you want to go ahead and go into that. She was the one that got him caught. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, if you have, if you have other details besides that of other, of other ladies, or, or is there more stories, specific stories? Yeah, so this one's very interesting to me. It was... Patty Roberts, and she had been working as a sex worker for a while, and he actually kidnapped her, and he threatened to kill her, but she talked him out of it. She talked him into letting her go. Apparently, this happened a few times, but when he let her go, he went into her purse, and he got out the information for her parents. He wrote down her parents' name and address and said, if you go to the police, I am going to find you and kill you and your parents. So she said, okay, fair enough. But she still went to police. 
he was brought in for questioning and they asked him, they wanted to do a writing sample to see if it matched what was in the hotel with Patty Roberts. And when he had signed into the hotel and out of his wallet fell this note with her dad's information on it. So you would think we've got this guy. He kidnapped this lady. We've got these other women that are showing up dead. We've got a case here. The police were so worried about the fact that they didn't have a search warrant. Then they came up with this note that they didn't want to pursue it at the time. So they let him go after having this crucial piece of evidence that should have tied him directly to at least some of the kidnappings, if not all the murders. How do these guys do this? It's insane. It is. I, and you would think he's not that, like he was very insecure. He had a stutter. How can he be charming enough to make that happen? Well, I mean, unlike the, the guy we talked about last time, who are you, you know, trying to get people to get into his car. Like he was picking people. This guy was picking people that would naturally get into his car. Right. He was right. picking sex right. workers. So, you know, as dangerous as it is, they're used to getting in the cars with creepers. Right. So it wouldn't be unnatural for them to get in the car with them. And then that's when the crap could go down. One thing that Patty did mention is when she went into police, they had a book of people and the, the local police, this was written by Sergeant, Walter Gilmore and Leland Hale, they wrote a book called The Butcher Baker, which one of his nicknames is Bob the Butcher Baker, which I feel like is a lame name for a serial killer. Sounds too much like Bob the Builder, whatever. But in this book, <laughs> they say that Anchorage cops had what they called the asshole book, in which they had photos and names of, from all the sexual predators and deviants that they had in town. And when these sex workers would come in, they would get out this book and say, which of these assholes tried to hurt you? But, of course, it would usually end up being their word against the word of the assailant, which was often Robert Hansen. He had people serving as an alibi for him. His wife's friends were an alibi for him. So nothing would ever really stick to him. And he continued to, to grow, and he continued to just, like most of these killers, he would more frequently hurt people as time went along. Kind of looking at a list of his victims here, and, and it says, you know, that Hansen is known to have raped and assaulted over 30 Alaskan women and to have murdered at least 17, ranging in ages from 16 to 41. A lot of these ones are kind of just going through the list here of Beth Van Zanten, Megan Emmerich, Mary Till. Uh, he's denying killing them, but he's suspected because of an ex on his aviation map. What exactly does that mean? You guys familiar with, with, uh, with that? Absolutely. That's one of the big keys to the case is when he was finally arrested and they, they raided his house. He had in his attic behind a wall. That was where he kept his trophies, right? We know serial killers like to keep things. Robert Hansen had a lot of different pieces of jewelry from his, his victims. He had some of the items that were allegedly stolen in the insurance scam, but he also had this map. And it was a map of the area around the Kinnick River where he would fly into and he would let his victims go and kill them. And there were 20 X's on this map that would show ultimately where he had buried the bottoms, the bodies of his victims throughout the wilderness. So he really had essentially a treasure map to the burial sites of almost all of his victims. And the police had literally a map to those when they arrested him. and. Part of his deal that we'll get to later was that he had to lead them to each of those and identify the body. But there were, like you said, there were a few that he never confessed to. There were a few exes that he refused to take them to. And nobody really knows what it was about those bodies 
those individuals or those crimes that he just he admitted to everything else, but why not those? Some people speculate that something would have happened during his rape process or during whatever he was doing with them that like maybe they hurt his feelings in some way that he didn't want to tell police where they were so they could never be identified. He wouldn't give them the courtesy basically of being mm-hmm. identified and found. That that's pure speculation. That that's what some people think about the the ones that were never identified. You mentioned something, Jamie, that I just wanted to touch on briefly. You said serial killers like to keep things. What is the reason for that as far as you know? I don't know if it's some kind of pride, you know, like I did this and this is my reminder that that I am powerful and I am the man, you know, so it's almost like gratification for doing what gives them so much pleasure. I think there's also an element of it of allowing them to relive the crimes. It's a direct connection to the people that they killed. A lot of times we'll see killers go back to the scene of the crime and even some of them will get off on being there. And I think they can take those trophies and just take a moment to go back to that moment where they got the gratification of committing that murder. So to them, they can relive those crimes over and over to get that feeling back just a little bit. But often they'll take some killers will take jewelry. Some will take wallets. Some will take pieces of hair. Some will take fingers. Like it's different for every killer, depending on how sadistic and whatever their motivation is. Uh, we covered a few that have kept the underwear of all of all of their Mm -hmm. victims. So they just like that trophy so they can relive it. And so they can have that as a victory mark. Like John said, this might be weird, but you you can hear a song sometimes and it just takes you back to like a powerful memory where you were listening to that song. I almost think it's like that. Like it's such a powerful reminder of that feeling that you had when you were doing whatever you were doing. Going through the list. There's a couple like old school, 1800 gold rush names here. I just love almost like Beatles songs, horseshoe, Harriet, and Eklutna Annie. There's a, a couple others. Yeah. Both of those were individuals that were bodies that were found. And he was actually charged with the murder of Eklutna Annie. And they were tied back to him. And he admitted both of those. But they were never identified as their real identities. So they were sex workers. You mentioned that nobody would miss them. We couldn't even track back an identity for these two victims of Robert Hansen. So, yeah, they were given those names as kind of placeholders instead of just Jane Doe until they figured out who they Mm -hmm. were. And they never did. Unfortunately. Did he, I mean, obviously when you're talking about these, these stories and it's only Hanson and his victim, did he ever give any detailed descriptions? Because you're looking through here and there's a lot of, you know, she was found in a shallow grave. This is Sherry Morrow. She had been shot in the back, no bullet holes in the clothing. Like you said, suggesting she had been shot while nude and then redressed before being buried. Did he ever explain any of these, or they were just kind of going off the forensics that they found on the bodies? No, he he explained the process as I would seek out a sex worker. Once she showed me that she was not a decent person, I would have my way with them physically and sexually, and then I would go and hunt them. Occasionally, I would feel merciful and let them go, but he never went into the tactic of why he stabbed some and why he shot some, why he... Uh, redressed some of them, why he ultimately, we don't know why he let the ones go that he did let go. He did confess to committing the crimes, but he never really opened up into what he actually did. What we do know is when his wife was a school teacher and they had two kids in the summer that he got caught, 
he sent them away for the summer and he said, I'm going to stay here and work on my summer project. And his Mm. summer project was using their basement as a place to hold women. So that's where we see Cindy Paulson. He kidnapped her and he chained her by the neck to a pole in her basement, in his basement. I'm I'm excited to talk about Cindy because if there is a bright spot in this story, it's Cindy. Like she is the hero of this awful, awful story. Quickly before we before before we get into Cindy, though, I just want to ask one more question. So you mentioned that he bought his own plane. Um, so is he? I, I don't know, just Fairbanks or wherever he, wherever he is, Anchorage. Is he finding these girls, drugging them? putting them on a plane, flying them, and then they wake up in the wilderness? Like, how is he getting them from point A to B with this plane? Yeah, so he he wasn't drugging them that we know of, but he would abuse them sexually and physically and just beat them and withhold food and water from them for days to where they had no energy to fight back. He would force them, them, put them in his car, drive them right up to his plane because it was a really small private plane. And he would just toss them in the back of the plane. He would get in and drive off. And he had a plane that had, I read about like the tires that he had were almost like big balloons where he could land pretty much anywhere in this plane. He didn't have to have a big open field. He could just kind of drop it down. It was small and he had these big balloon like tires and it was perfect for what he was doing. Unbelievable. But okay, let's talk, like you said, about the bright part about the hero of the story, Cindy Paulson. Yeah, so he would he would offer her, I think, a couple hundred dollars for oral sex, and so she agreed to get in the car with him, and once she got in the car, that's what Jamie was saying, She he drove her to his family home, took her down to the basement, and tied her up to a beam in the basement downstairs, and that's when he raped her repeatedly, I mean, to the point where she, she was physically weak by, by everything that he had been doing, but he was nonchalant about it. Like, I remember he even went upstairs to take a nap once he was done. And then he woke up and took her in the plane or was going to take her to the plane to, to fly her to this area. But on the, when she got there to the airport, she freaking escaped. She got out of his, she got out of there and she was able, even though she was bound, she was handcuffed. She was able to run down the street. And that's when a truck driver driving down the road saw her and was able to pick her up and drive her away. The truck driver even oh said that, that, that Hanson was chasing her with a gun, you know? So this, oh was, my gosh. this was a bad situation. So they ended up driving to a motel where she didn't want to call police because she was a sex worker. So she would basically be calling to, you know, to turn herself in. So, but the, the lady working there at the motel is like, no, honey, we're calling the police on that one. And so the truck driver and Cindy were able to give police details about this guy, like it, where his house was at, what kind of car he drove. He, she left stuff in his car. What did she leave in She there? left his, her shoes, her blue tennis shoes in his car so that she could say, see, that's where I was. So she ran away barefooted. Hmm. Like when you're in, and I've never been anything close to the situation that she was in, but oftentimes what we see with victims are that your your details that you're seeing are not very accurate. But in her case, she held it together so well, and she gave the police the information they needed to really hone in on this guy. And to get away at such the right moment, he was having trouble getting the seat in the plane to lay down. So she noticed that he was distracted, and she was able to slip out the passenger side door there and and get away. And when she actually got to the hotel, she went to a hotel where her boyfriend slash 
what's a good word for a boss for sex workers other than pimp? A John. Okay. It, it was, yeah, the guy that she worked for and her boyfriend was there. He immediately left to go try to find Robert Hansen to kill him as police were responding to Cindy Paulson. Well, here how Cindy Paulson was able to help police bring down Robert Hansen. Finally, before we get into that story, M1's title of finance super app is firmly unchallenged. They are a powerhouse of money management with unmatched automation, some of the best borrow rates on the market, tons of flexibility, and powerful tools that let you do more with every dollar. M1 cleans house among the competition. Hundreds of thousands of investors are ditching their brokers for the A-show M1 Finance. They've already got over $5 billion in assets on their platform with no sign of getting gas. They've got a huge pop from the press as well. M1 won Best for Sophisticated Investors and Best Robo-Advisor from Investopedia, two years running, and they have over 35,000 five-star reviews on the App Store and Google Play. Plus, get a $30 bonus to your M1 Invest account when you get approved and fund it with $1,000 within your first 14 days. Terms and conditions apply. So head to m1finance.com slash Jericho to get started for free. That's M, the number one, finance.com slash Jericho. Investing involves risk. Borrowing can increase that loss and borrow rates may vary. All right, think about that. And think about this. So how does this kind of bring him down then? You mentioned that, that she was kind of the one that was able to, to, to catch him. So just like all the times before, he was brought in for questioning. He had alibis. His friend continued to say, no, he was with me those nights. He had other people from around town. The police, of course, I mean, we could make the joke about him owning a bakery and making friends with police officers by giving them donuts. And there was an element of this to that, I think. But this one was able to stick because they brought in uh, an FBI agent to help profile this killer. Now, this was John Douglas, who's famous for working on Mindhunter, so a really big name and profiling. Right. And the profile that he brought in was that they were looking for an experienced hunter with low self-esteem, having a history of being rejected by women, and would feel compelled to keep souvenirs of his murders, such as jewelry. He also suggested that the assailant might even have a stutter from his extreme low self-esteem. Oh, my gosh. How amazingly spot on is that? That's pretty much a direct description. How, like, I love profiling and the idea of it, but it blows my mind that it actually works that well. What's interesting to me was that when the profiler agreed to meet with the detectives, they were going to start saying, hey, we got this guy, you know, here's, but he stopped him and was like, don't tell me about the guy. Tell me about the victims and everything you know about them. And then he was able to get his profile off that. So it, it kind of blows my mind. You're able to figure out details, even as far as a stutter. Like, how does, is this magic? Like, how does that work? <laughs> what about everything would indicate that? I don't know. It's crazy. Except for it's not magic, though, because when he's questioned by the cops, he denies it. And then what happens? Yeah, he, he fits the profile perfectly. And while he's questioned and they continue this investigation, they don't arrest him immediately. But they find other bodies. They just found the body of Shelly Morrow, who you mentioned. They found the body of Paula Golding. So they're starting to really stack up a lot of bodies here. And they put together like a whole team to look into this. And they found the body of Joanna Messina as well. So they found all these bodies. And that's when they brought him in. And they, due to the profile, they were able to set a precedent here that a criminal profile was enough to get a warrant 
And they went to his house, looked through his house, looked through his plane, and that's where they found all the evidence they needed to get him convicted. And his friends flipped on him. Like the, the officers brought his friends back in and they're like, all right, if we find out that you're lying to us about this guy's whereabouts, then we're going to criminally charge you. And so they flipped their script real quick when, when charges were promised against them if they were found to be lying. I get being a good friend, but you don't like cover for a friend for murder. And they probably didn't think he was committing murder. They thought they were just covering for him and he was innocent anyway. But still, that's, that's something the bro code shouldn't mess with. They probably <laughs> thought they, that this guy was out messing around on his wife or something, but not to the extent of raping and murdering people. Well, and just to, just to point this out, too, before they got John Douglas involved in all this other stuff, originally, when when uh, Paulson identified Hansen, he just blamed it on her, and they basically let him go to where the case went cold. That was what I was pointing out before. This case went cold because he was able to talk himself out of it Again, because you mentioned the alibi from his friend, et cetera, et cetera. So had they not got the FBI involved, he he did what so many of these guys do. They just talk themselves out of this. That just blows my mind. When your victims are sex workers, a lot of time it's going to be yeah. your word versus theirs. And police, especially at this time and this era in Anchorage, they didn't take the words of sex workers seriously. And that's very unfortunate not to listen to a victim of a crime. But they, of course, believe they're local baker who makes the best uh, bear claws in town over this sex worker who's saying that he hurt me. He was trying to claim that uh, these people tried to extort him for money, that Cindy tried to extort him for more money, and that she ran away and claimed that he tried to kill her just to try to get him in trouble for not giving her that money. So you're right. He, he, he was able to talk him his way out of it. And thankfully, the FBI did come in. And I don't know what I think about being able to get a warrant just based on a profile. I'm certainly thankful that it led to led to solving this case, but in principle, I don't know how I feel about that. It's not really an exact science. It's not fingerprints out there. Well, in this case, I'm glad they did because like you mentioned, when they went to his house and found all this evidence and finally they start breaking him down. So does he eventually confess to all of this? He did. And it was really what you brought up earlier. It was the map that they brought out and uh, many of them matched sites where bodies have been found previously. So he eventually confessed to each item of evidence as it was brought to him. He admitted a spree of attacks against Alaskan women starting in 1971. And he told them again about his MO, approaching a woman working in the bad part of town, forced them into his car, tying them up, and then getting them on the plane. Once he was out, uh, got them out in the wilderness, he would also, we should have mentioned this, strip them naked before he would let them go. So it's not like he was hunting them throughout the wilderness when they had clothes on them and they were able to get away, but they were naked, running scared. They were tired. They were abused and they had no chance at all. And it was this map that really unlocked everything and eventually convinced him that, yeah, there's no way out of this one. So what was he eventually uh, convicted for? Yeah. So he would only be charged with four murders. That was of Shelly Morrow, Paula Golding, Akluna Annie and Joanna Messina. He made a deal that he would only be charged for those murders and that he would lead police to all the X's on the maps to help them discover the graves. In return, he would not be given the death penalty and he would be able to stay in a state prison instead of a maximum security federal prison. 
eventually he would lead them to 13 of the graves. But again, I mentioned there were a few that he did not lead them to. He was ultimately sentenced to 461 years in prison plus a full life sentence. And he ultimately bounced around to a couple different state prisons and he died of natural causes at the age of 75 in 2014 in an Anchorage prison. So, yeah, what we know of at least 17 murder victims. We know of 30 rape victims. John and I, at the end of every show that we do, we talk about whether or not justice was served. He's only being charged for four crimes here. He was also right. charged for the insurance fraud, but that was really just to hold him over while they investigated the murders. But I, I just don't feel like justice is done for all these other victims, all these other women. Well, because he, he showed, um, once again, just doing a little reading here, he showed investigators 17 grave sites, 12 of which were unknown to investigators. Okay. How could he not get charged for these murders for the graves that they didn't even know existed? Like, hey, here's a grave with a body in it. Like, who else could have done this? That was the part of the agreement that he would show them to all these bodies. He would uncover all these exes, but he could not be charged for the crimes that were found there. And I'm all for, again, plea deals, whatever. Let's let's get people behind bars. But this just seems like it, at times I feel like prosecutors may be forced into a situation where they make a deal that really just isn't right. And I feel like this was one of them. You know, yeah. I mean, and once again, I mean, um, I always wonder, like, why only charged with four murders? It seems very random. Is there certain evidence for those four in particular that were just neon glowing signs, or are they just more of a random thing? I mean, what's what's your opinion and your information on that? These were the four bodies that were discovered between the time that Cindy Paulson called in and the time that they actually got the warrant for his house. So these, although they had these other missing persons, there were other complaints, these were the four that the time of the investigation, once they put together this team to investigate these crimes, these are the bodies that they found. He confessed to these four. And a lot of time prosecutors will say, you know what, we, we have evidence for these others, but these four are airtight. These are the four that we know we can take to trial. We can get a conviction on, and they don't want to risk bringing in a fifth one that may cause the jury to question the whole thing. So they felt like these were a lock. and they stayed with those and I get it logically, but emotionally it just doesn't feel right. This is uh taking place once again. I mean, he, he passes away, uh, 2014. So did he ever do any interviews at all? Like television interviews or anything like that? You know, sometimes they would get these guys and talk to them about what they were doing. No, not that we know of. He, he gave the police what they wanted to know and he went and he tried to, lived the rest of his life anonymously in prison. He was, as far as we know, a model prisoner, which somehow I feel like a lot of serial killers end up being model prisoners. He was victimizing female sex workers. He didn't have access to that. He wasn't a big, strong guy that's going to go in and cause a lot of trouble in prison, but he never really spoke out about his motives. He never spoke out about his childhood. He never spoke out about his crimes, except during his confessions with police which a lot of these guys want attention, but that was not something that Robert Hansen sought out. It was just the, I guess the thrill of the hunt for him, even though he was really stacking the deck in that hunting game. When you look at his psychiatric records, he, he had bipolar disorder. And, and so sometimes he would have treatment for that. So I'm wondering if in prison they were treating him for this. And that's why he was a model citizen is because he was on medicines that he needed to try to live a healthier life. But. Bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. 
It's interesting too because as, as we start to to wind down here, you're seeing all of the, you know, the movies, and I, I haven't seen this Frozen Ground with John Cusack and Nicolas Cage, uh, basically about that story. But there's also FBI files, there's crime stories, there's investigation discovery, there's you know, oxygen shows and Travel Channel shows. There's a lot of uh, kind of reports and and documentaries and 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 uh, you know recreations of this. Why do you think that Robert Hansen and, and his his crimes are so interesting to us? I think it's because of, I don't, I don't know, when I think about this case, I think about the book, The, the Most Dangerous Game Ever yeah, Played, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, it is just, it's, it's so connected to that. And I mean, I don't know, we hear about so many serial killers, but I think it's the aspect of taking them into the middle of the woods, dropping them off, after he's already done such horrible things to him and then he hunts them down like animals. I think that is the piece that makes it stick out amongst so many other serial killers we've ever, ever covered. It just seems so fictitious that somebody a would do this and B could get away with it for so long. But it also interests me that it's not one of the common ones that we hear. You rolled off four or five serial killers earlier in the show and there are a handful more that, Everybody knows those names. Not everybody knows Robert Hansen. How much does that have to do with it happening in Alaska, with it happening during this time in history when things were awful up there anyway? My bigger question is, why don't we know more about this as far as pop culture goes? Yes, we see these movies based on it. We see these crime shows based on it. But it's never tied back to him, and his name's never really brought up in those. I think another reason, too, is that, like, you know, if you go back to like, let's say the the cookbook killer, like that's it's so. I mean, I don't even know if disgusting or disturbing or whatever it may be, but this is something like you see it in movies, and you know, like just just a mat, you could put yourself in this position. You know what I mean? Like just when you said, I think the ultimate detail of this is is the criminals or sorry is is the victims being stripped naked. You know, because that's kind of the most undignified thing. And just imagine if you're now naked in the woods and these are woods that he knows. It's like that really kind of what chance do you have? You know what I mean? Like I can you, I can envision myself in this position, which I think makes it that much more chilling to think about what he did and what these victims went through. And I think that was kind of his point is that when they would make this offer to him and say, I'll perform this act for this amount of money to him, they were no longer human beings. They were people who had sex for money and they were not yeah. decent and they became animals to him at some point. So by taking them out there and abusing them and stripping them down, they were at their most primal vulnerable state. And he viewed them as animals at that point. And you mentioned him knowing the woods, like he was, we mentioned that he was a good hunter. He held four world right. records for, doll sheep which i didn't know was an animal it's like a big sheep ram thing and and caribou like in oh wow <laughs> what's interesting is young and pope did not that's the book of hunting world records initially said his records don't have anything to do with his murders they stand but later on they would kind of succumb to the pressure and and remove his name from the record books but he was a very good hunter that could easily find these women and take care of them in the wild so that so that's the thing because he's such a cunning hunter he's just using those same skills that he used for a would you say a bog sheep a uh, ball sheep a ball sheep 
but applying doll that sheep. doll, doll yeah. sheep, but applying that to, to, to a human being right there as well. Yeah. But a doll sheep at least has the, I don't know, they have the natural characteristics built in to hide or defend themselves. And they're familiar with the territory, but these women certainly were not. They had absolutely no chance. Just the chilling, uh, uh, it's almost like it reminds me of Silence of the Lambs when he kidnaps the daughter of the, of the governor and he puts her into the well and the, and the, and the governor's saying her name because they're trying to make this woman be a human. You know, and when you mentioned that, that Hansen is now writing these people off because they're bad people, he probably didn't even know their name. He just saw them as just animals. And that's probably how he was able to justify it, too. I'm just killing an animal like I would kill a doll sheep, like you mentioned. And what we don't have is, of course, he sent his family away for the summer. And when they get back, he's being investigated for this for this crime and these murders. We never got any reaction from them. They tried to stay in the area, but their kids were harassed for being the kids of a killer. And eventually they had to move away, of course. But we really don't know anything about their reaction. I referenced BTK earlier. His daughter, Carrie Rawson, is very outspoken about her childhood and finding out her dad was a killer. Uh, yeah, I think that guest suggestion there for you. But I, you just never know what these families are thinking about and going through because they had no clue. For all they knew, dad was working on a big hunting project that summer, and they come to find out he had killed at least 17 women. That's got a, We talk about trauma. I don't think it gets much worse than that. Once again, BTK's bind, torture, kill. That was his uh, MO, the BTK killer. Uh, so I guess last question, I think we talked about this last time, and, and this is for both both you guys. Uh, is this something that you are born with? Is it something that the, his childhood caused him to do? I mean, all of us have had some worse than others, but you know, bad childhoods or a stern father or a stern mother, but... Not a lot of us end up to be, you know, serial killers chasing naked prostitutes through the wild and killing them. Yeah, I, I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's unfortunately a culmination of both. I think he he was playing with a stacked deck. I think he, he had some mental health issues that, you know, if he was treated and he had a great family that could, you know, support him and, and make sure he got the treatment he needed, he may have went on to live a healthy life, but Unfortunately, his home life was not awesome. He had no friends. He was completely alone with no meaningful relationships in his life. And I think that coupled with the mental health issues culminated in who he became. I think it's weighted for every individual. I think for some, a lot of it does come like those mental health issues are impossible to become and they plague you for your entire life. For Hanson, I feel like a lot more of it. Yes, he did have the mental health issues that played a role. But I think a bigger piece of the pie may go to all the rejection that he suffered and all the issues that he had to deal with. Yes, we, we all had acne. Yes, we all got rejected, but it was, it was constant for him. He wasn't even allowed to use his dominant hand. Like he wasn't allowed to do anything right. he wanted to do during his adolescence. And I feel like for him, that played a larger role in creating who he would be, even though the mental health is a sort of, of course, an important piece. And the last thing I'll say is such, it just bums me out when a guy like that, he goes to prison, he ends up dying in jail at 75 years old. You know, people, he's killing 17 year old women, yet this motherfucker lasts till he's 75. You know what I mean? Like, it's just sometimes you wonder, but um, what, a, what an incredible story. Another completely disturbing tale. 
from you, uh, you sick bastards, you. <laughs> we just covered another case that will drop uh, sometime soon. His name is Killer Petey from Brazil. And he was a criminal that saw all these bad people doing these monstrous things, and he would kill them. So why couldn't have why couldn't have Henson ran into a guy like Killer Petey in jail and like got that's a broomstick across yeah, the, the face or something? You know? Yeah. Well, that's you know we all have friends that died of a of some terrible disease at a very young age. It's like Hanson should take that and give his years to other people that deserve it. You know what I mean? But that's not how life works. But uh, Killer Petey, that sounds interesting. Maybe we might have to do that next time. Uh, on, on Talk is Jericho, but it's great having you guys on. Always uh, enthralling uh, stories, and, and you guys are great guests. I look forward to having you on again uh, when you come up with something else. All right, man. We appreciate you. We really do. Thanks, Chris. All right, guys. Thank you so much. 